0: Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on comparisons, we'll be talking about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hello again, Glenn. We're using here the, the holiday break to record a whole bunch of it. We're releasing out here in the new year. So hello again, just one day later, but probably a couple of weeks later for our audience.
1: Let's play our where in the world game to get started. And that's world as you coined it, W-H-O-R-L-D. Yes. All right. So, Eric, the game of any new listeners, I'm going to give three facts about a country and see if you can name the country at the end of the three facts, although you might be able to determine it sooner than that. All right. So the first fact is that it's a small island country. It was actually colonized by the Brits in 1874, then later gained its independence in 1970. Fact number one. Okay. Fact number two is that the number one export was, until quite recently, petroleum products, particularly refined petroleum products. I was very surprised that this island country had millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in refined oil and petroleum exports. But now the number one export is clean water, followed by processed fish, gold, raw cane sugar, and wood. And then okay. the third one. And the third one, there is an important clue in that last one, particularly the its current number one export. But the third one I think you will really appreciate is that there was an AT&T commercial about this particular country in the 90s in which there was a guy getting into a phone booth trying to call the city of Phoenix. And someone on the other line would pick up the phone because there was a misdial. The AT or the operator, because he wasn't using AT and T, would connect him to the wrong country, and the person would answer to the phone, monalaka pise, <laughs> and then the guy on the phone would get very angry and go, "Well, AT and T never does this with, me, well, right. with my phone calls." And then he would, re- the operator would respond with, "Well, you're not dealing with AT and T," and then he would snarkily say, "What well, I am now," and then he would be switching over to AT and T.
0: All right, well, I think I got it after the second one, but then the, the third one really kind of confirmed it for me. However, I do not remember that commercial <laughs> at all. You don't remember the commercial,
1: Monologue and Pisae? Uh, oh, my
0: gosh. But so my guess is Fiji.
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: So Fiji. It's funny, I've been on YouTube watching old Mystery Science Theater episodes, but it's kind of like this. my latest kick getting into those old TV shows again. I've been watching on YouTube, they, and people have uploaded the original broadcast versions of these that include all yes. of the commercials from the yes, 90s. I, I
1: I love those.
0: And I, I'm continually like amazed at how many, like, what just the sheer percentage of commercials that were dedicated to long-distance topics.
1: Yes, it, yes, you're absolutely right. Just, this was probably one of those commercials that exactly. would have been right in that time. Late 80s, maybe early 90s, right in there. I, it. I will tell you that commercial was probably the first time I ever I had ever heard of the country Fiji. <laughs> I think it was like how I first was exposed to Fiji, and now I cannot get that stupid commercial out of my head. That's. One... I'm sure there are some listeners that can empathize with this feeling.
0: Oh, and there's definitely commercials that trigger that kind of nostalgia kick. But uh, maybe if I s- actually, will look it up and watch it and see if it if it does the trick for me or my wife. Maybe she uh, she'll also remember.
1: Sure. I also wanted to give a quick shout out, even though we had talked about some of the listeners in the past episodes and I mentioned you had mentioned my dad also had become like a, a patreon and that surprised me and was really cool I did want to give a shout out to another layperson who I know listens regularly to the show it was a guy I went to school with by the name of Dave Mextroth. Uh, he lives up in northern Michigan in the town of Indian River, which is uh, up near the the Mackinaw bridge okay. in 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 Michigan and I guess he's been listening for now a couple of years as well. And uh, he basically sent me a text agreeing with our assessment or my dad's assessment of the show that even though <laughs> as a layperson, it's interesting, but you can still follow along. And even when we get too far out of depth, we kind of swing it back for so that a layperson can actually follow and finds it entertaining, the fact that he's listened not just like one or two episodes, but pretty much... Many, many episodes of every one would be hyperbole or not. But anyway, shout out to Dave, and uh, thanks for listening, and thanks for the text and support. Kind of cool having non-forensic people interested in the show. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Dave, for listening. Yeah. Cool. All right. So before we get started with the main topic today, yes. I was just going to briefly update you on something. I had a, a hearing today, and I gave testimony in this hearing on... I won't even say drug chemistry because it wasn't drug chemistry. It was actually just chemistry. Okay. And, yeah, here in Minnesota and other jurisdictions, but it's being challenged significantly here. Here in Minnesota, a police officer, typically in conjunction with some other information like a confidential informant or maybe someone, you know, rolls over on another person or they stop someone with drugs and... Like, hey, where did you get those? And it basically says, I've been buying drugs at this residence from that guy. And so one of the things that they'll do they get a warrant on the place is go and swab the often the like the doorknob or the door to, to the place, maybe even the person's vehicle door handle. But they'll swab something on the property with basically a cotton swab looking thing that most people have probably seen at the airport. Sometimes you randomly get selected and they'll hold a little wand and they'll scrub your suitcase or your iPhone or even your hands with a little wand thing and a cotton pad and then stick it in a machine. Well, this machine is called ion mobility spectrometry, IMS for short. And if they get a positive alarm for cocaine or methamphetamine or THC, this will give them probable cause to then get a warrant to go in and seize property and search, search the premises. So one of the things that I got involved in is maybe a couple of years ago, some attorneys reached out to me and they asked my thoughts on the technology. And I took a look at this and I began to realize that this instrumentation really hadn't been validated for this particular purpose. And as an analytical chemist, not because I never did drug chemistry. I didn't do drug chemical tests in the laboratory. I was a supervisor. But as an analytical chemist, there were like some basic things that hadn't been tested before. And so one of the things about the instrument is that it, the manufacturer claims to be able to detect drugs at the nanogram or even sub-nanogram level. So like during the hearing today, I had to describe what a nanogram is. And the analogy I use is if you can picture a grain of salt, which is typically one milligram, it's a thousandth of a gram. Well, this is a millionth of a grain of salt and it can detect at that level, presumably, and smaller than that, down to like a thousandth of a millionth of a grain of salt. And we're talking about ridiculously trace amounts of substance. And Lo and behold, they're seizing money, for example, from that they believe might be used in drug deals. And guess what they're finding all over the money? Well, there? cocaine, because, uh, like,
0: oh, Jesus. Like, that's been known for decades that, like, the entire U.S. money supply is covered in
1: cocaine. 91% of the bills they're testing are alarming. Uh, well, of course, at, they at the are. agency that's doing this testing. Yeah. Ex-
0: the bills I... in the judge's pocket would alarm. Every bill alarms.
1: It's. Yeah, you're following along perfectly. Yes. were all the concerns I'm trying to bring up. And I pointed out about four or five different studies, including some studies done by the pollution agency, pollution control agency in Minnesota that tested lake water here and found cocaine in something like 47 of 50 lakes that they tested. Like, so it's in the rainwater and in the, you know, in our watershed. There are these studies In Australia, that went into public places like the library, civic center, courthouse, a police station, and swabbed publicly accessible objects like computer mouse or a keyboard or door handles. And it alarmed... Oh, sorry. It was detecting cocaine in, I want to say it was 80 to 90% of the swabs at the nanogram level, and methamphetamine in 20% of them. So the concern I was raising in this is sensitivity. The instrument, they haven't done any studies to demonstrate that at these levels that a positive result is meaningful in any way, given your background noise. And uh, so sensitivity is a big issue. And what's an appropriate alarm threshold for a meaningful result? You know, they brought up, the prosecutor brought up, you know, TSA uses this stuff. Yes, but presumably because they're not pulling every person over and basically searching their Suitcases for bombs, there has to be some reasonable threshold at which the instrument goes off because there are explosives, you know, at the nanogram level. Like this instrument detects explosives. And most of these cases, there's actually explosives also that are in the background noise as well. There has to be a reasonable level of sensitivity that you establish through validation testing that's well above the background noise. And usually the standard in the field is usually 10 or maybe 20 times the background noise. So, I mean, there's you know, already precedent for how to do that testing. And they hadn't done any of that. And they haven't been doing any of that of at course. all. And surprisingly, the manufacturer apparently doesn't have those data either. Or if they do, they've not shared them at all. And I believe in one of these other cases, they've even reached out to the manufacturer. And the manufacturer is like, we don't have anything we can provide.
0: I, I would Which, disagree with one statement there, Glenn. You said surprisingly. I'm not surprised oh. that the manufacturer has not done any of this work or can not provide anything. Because yeah. they're just, here's some money. Can you give us something that will give an, an automatic positive test every time? Sure. I, I will take your money, sir. Well,
1: your cynical view is shared by me as well. I just didn't say it during the hearing, but no. I I, I agree 100%. You know, they're selling these things for anywhere from fifty to 100000 pop. And yeah, it's it's giving lots of positive results. But I just kept saying, I I was telling the judge was asking really good questions. I was saying, I don't know if a positive result is meaningful. And then prosecution was saying, well, it doesn't alarm all the time. And they looked at some case data and found out like thousands of cases, you know, they alarm something like 55% of the time. And what I said was, yeah, that all you're telling me is how often they're getting alarms, but I don't have ground truth. I don't know if that's actually significant. What if 90% of those 55% are false alarms? How am I to know if that's good or not? And the analogy I use is, no, it's like my son taking a true-false test and telling me, dad, I answered true on 60% of these and false on 40%. My response to that is, well, that's great, but how many did you get right or wrong? Without the answer key, how do I know if your responses were correct or not? I hope that analogy made sense to the court because I mean they did struggle a little bit like they wanted some questions about well what kind of uncertainty should we put on this and I just kept saying I don't know I can't assess this without data without any data I have no idea they were saying is it reliable or unreliable and I said I can't tell you either way I can't say it's unreliable because I don't know if it is or not without data How am I supposed to assess reliability with no data?
0: So it sounds like you've been involved in this type of testimony before, or is this the first time?
1: No, this is probably the fifth or sixth, maybe seventh hearing I've had on this. Just We haven't talked about it before, but yeah, they're in different jurisdictions and different judges are handling them differently. And each case is, is taken on its own. And in a lot of these cases, they probably would have gotten the warrant without the IMS technology. There's so much investigatory information or informants or things like that, that that was probably sufficient for the warrant. But in some of the cases, and there's one I'm thinking of where they got a hit for cocaine, there was allegedly they thought this guy might be dealing drugs. They went, they got a hit for cocaine. They go and search the guy's place and find marijuana and they find a gun. But he had a permit for the gun. But because they deemed him drug dealer with the gun. Well, that's now, in extenuating circumstances, aggravated charges, even though he, had, he was licensed to have a gun, right. legally owned, and they never found any cocaine in the place. They only found marijuana, which he completely coped to and said, yes, I buy marijuana from a guy in Colorado, and yes, I share some with my friends. Yes, I'm into the marijuana, which is in Minnesota currently. It's still not legal, but they never found any cocaine in the place at all. But they actually charged him with the distribution of cocaine as well, even though they didn't find any. They went into the trash, used this on the trash, and and were able to detect something in the trash. They thought he must have sold all of his cocaine, and there must just be trace residue in the trash can, even though they couldn't actually find any. They had simply detected it in the trash. But there's another study that shows... That mail passing through the U.S. postal system picks up nanogram amounts of cocaine because drugs are being shipped through the U.S. postal system all the time.
0: So how are the judges ruling on on these hearings? Sure.
1: Well, it varies. Some judges have been like, it doesn't really matter. The search warrant was fine because of all this other information. Nobody has actually really ruled on this technology. They've all kind of avoided it and said, "Yeah, there is enough to get the warrant with or without the technology. And then in some other cases, prosecutors have just dropped the charges or offered a sweetheart deal that the defendant basically had to take. So we really haven't had a definitive ruling. And I can see that the state's trying to avoid, of course, an adverse ruling on this. So but today they seem to kind of take it before this judge who is going to make a ruling. So we'll see where the case goes. But anyway, it's pretty I find it fascinating. It was just a great opportunity the last couple of years to use my chemistry side, right? I just never really get, get to talk about chemistry and trying to describe how this works and what dipole moments and anions and ionic charges and all that kind of stuff. I find it all sort of fun using analogies to describe instruments. Ooh, ooh, ooh. One other crazy thing, Eric. Okay. You're going to love this. All right. So I've described the situation to you. You can understand all the analytical stuff. They haven't done any false positive, false negative, sensitivity, specificity, linearity, testing, limit of detection, any of the stuff you normally do for instruments. Right. They haven't done any of that. What I said was I don't care about all that because the bigger concern in this case before we even get to the analytical stuff is when the officer swabs the door handle. They take the swab. They're wearing a glove when they do the swab, and they're swabbing, holding it, and swabbing it. Even at the airport, they don't actually hold the swab. They hold it with a wand. Right. Uh, but here they're holding it with their hand and mm-hmm. a glove. And then they basically hold, they pinch it with, with their hand and then take the glove off inside out and then use the exterior of the glove as an envelope to then transport the swab to the facility to be tested. So they're using their glove as an evidence envelope for a trace swab of controlled substances. That in some of these cases, they've actually put the glove on while in the police car or like handling things in the police squad car and then go. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Can you fathom it? I mean, it's mind-blowing as a forensic scientist to hear that you're using a glove. The exterior of your glove as. The envelope. Uh,
0: yes, and just the potential contamination of whatever, not having this any kind of control of what if there's something on the glove or in the car <clears throat> on the officer.
1: Yes, yeah, uh, all of that. There was a study in a nearby county where they had placed someone in the back of a squad car and then after transporting them to the county jail then took gunshot residue swabs from their hands and defense had argued they could have picked up gunshot residue from the inside of the vehicle. Nice. Of course, that was disputed. But then they went and tested the inside of the, the squad cars. They just randomly went in a bunch of squad cars, swabbed inside. Because what they found on, like, 90% of the swabs. Gunshot residue. Right. And again, at trace amounts. Which then, in that county, they stopped using gunshot residue because of this, especially because of this collection procedure and the fact that officers could have introduced it themselves. I argue the exact same thing here. You have these drug task force agents who are seizing cocaine on a regular basis, probably even testing it presumptively in their vehicle using pouch kits and field test kits. How contaminated is the inside of their vehicle with controlled substances that they're touching while they're putting on gloves that they're then about to take a swab that's going to help them get a warrant in another case. And if there's nanograms or smaller of drug on it, we'll get a hit. Just... I mean, it's absolutely mind blowing to me. And this has come up in multiple cases. And everyone kind of looks at me like, well, what's your problem, dude? <laughs> I don't know. It's very surprising. It's, it's, shock- it's frankly shocking. The immediately
0: thing that came to mind for me was beyond the getting to the charging phase here for these cases, how often is this being used as the basis for civil forfeiture where the, the PD just takes the house that the that's where it, some it of the money even,
1: testing is coming in
0: files you know charges aren't even filed right it's just oh right, we just we're just going to take the house now and everything in it and okay we won't charge you all right go ahead and go but that's a that's another it's a thing that happens and i could see that being this technology being used to justify that that asset forfeiture and that's that's so crazy if that is if that is happening or if it's happening more and more
1: well again that's where a lot of the money was being tested they once they get got into the place and found money, then they would come back, bring the money back to the facility to be tested, and then lo and behold, it would hit for cocaine. So, right okay. it had to be used, in, you know, in the course of illegal drug sales. Anyway, I it's all been very fascinating, and I'll give updates on it if yeah. anyone's interested in this.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, another quick topic here before we get into the main meat of the episode. We're twenty minutes in or so. So. I was on a podcast here that just finally got uh, that published here uh, in December. Uh, it's called cousins by blood. And so I'm not going to kind of go into the whole story of how I got involved in this case, but it's one of these true crime kind of podcasts. And I, I was asked to look at some fingerprints in, in that case, a murder case where the guy's been in jail now for 20 some odd years. And uh, the podcast is going back and looking at the, the evidence involved in this case. And one of them is that uh, there's a couple of fingerprint IDs. Uh, well, there was a another fingerprint expert that looked at those fingerprint IDs that came to the conclusion that they were erroneous IDs, or there was one erroneous ID. And then after I looked at it, I saw that there was similarity, it is an ID, and that this other expert reached an erroneous exclusion. So in this podcast, kind of talk through... What goes into that, how erroneous exclusions happen. That's a topic I've been interested in for a while now. So if you're interested in that, you want to hear more, you can go to Cousins by Blood. Just do a search for podcasts and it should come up fairly easily. I think that's also on Apple Podcasts. And then also on my YouTube channel, search for Ray Forensics on YouTube. Glenn and I, a few months ago, recorded a video of us going through and breaking down this comparison and really analyzing what went wrong during that comparison that led this other examiner to think it was an erroneous ID. So essentially how he made an erroneous exclusion and his documentation of his, of this process was very good. So you can very clearly see exactly where he went wrong. And uh, it's, it's an interesting breakdown that Glenn and I do. So if you want to watch the video where we kind of go into more depth, talk about this fingerprint comparison, you can find the YouTube video, or if you want to hear more about this case, I don't really know a whole lot about it other than this one fingerprint. You can look up Cousins by Blood.
1: Yeah, my recollection, too, when we discussed during our comparison, is just, it's so rare that you have such fantastic documentation or an erroneous exclusion, right? I mean, that's what's so strange. You don't usually get that, but he thoroughly documented why he felt that they were not from the same source, and... Some of it's quite reasonable. You can very quickly see how it goes down the wrong path. I seem to recall I had some difficulties with it like out of the gate and had I not adjusted a few things, I could easily have found myself in the same area and the same sort of issues. It's really pretty fascinating and I I thought it was a really good training exercise.
0: Yeah, and I'm starting to use his documentation and then this case in training related to exclusions and I think uh, it's going to be a fantastic resource. Really to to see that kind of that documentation just that the mind of an erroneous exclusion and exactly where it happened at least in this one instance which can probably be extrapolated out to to many other not all erroneous exclusions but a pretty broad class of them. all right so glenn i think maybe let's jump into the uh, the actual topic of the episode here
1: yeah all right a couple of appetizers now we're ready for the entree
0: exactly exactly all right, so Glenn, the main topic here for this week, we're gonna be talking about the recent publication of some results from NIST's evaluation of latent friction ridge technology. So NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they've been benchmark tests on how accurate different search algorithms are on well, really many different modalities. So fingerprint, both 10-print and latent, iris, face comparisons, tattoo searches, you know, all sorts of different searching or biometric searches and we've got some new data out on the latent print side so good opportunity to uh, to talk about it here so yes before we get into really the meat of it i just want to be open and upfront with with all the listeners out there we'll be talking about some of the different vendors that participated in this research one of the vendors is Idemia, which is the the company that I work for full time. So we're going to be approaching this as you know, talking about the data that NIST, as a third party tester, has released. And but I did want everyone to know that I, I do work for one of the companies that was represented by uh, that participated in these tests here.
1: And I should disclose too that I do contract work for them. So right, and we we wanted to just be upfront about that, but also just kind of make it clear. Right. We're just really talking about the data. We both find the data interesting, and you you know a lot more about these things. And I actually have a lot of questions for you. Hopefully, yeah. you can answer some of them. And uh, kind of curious about this this whole process that they go through and why they do this for uh, for the different vendors. It's very interesting to me, but I think you have a lot of inside baseball knowledge of this.
0: I, I'll try. I'll share as much as I can or as much as I know, but uh, which is definitely not everything. So, uh, but. Uh, let's get into it here. Uh, so NIST in 2020 reopened up what they're calling ELFT, Evaluation of Latent Friction Ridge Technology. Now, this dates back to latent print comparison or latent print searching work that NIST had done dating back to 2006. It was originally Evaluation of Latent Fingerprint Technology. They just now, with the new version, updated it from finger t- fingerprint to friction ridge. Kept the acronym the same. But going back to 2006 and then all the way through 2012 is when the results were released from the last of a whole series of tests, comparing different vendors uh, of how they perform when the a latent print is searched against a large database of 10 print records. And so there's a whole series of different tests that go into it. The tests may be image only, so just for the latent print, just stick in the image by itself. And then let the vendor software uh, encode any details that are present there, and then search that, or have the latent print search use minutia encodings that were provided by fingerprint experts. Where NIST has already had experts go through and mark out the features on the latent print, and then search it that way.
1: So I have, yeah. I have a couple of questions about that. Can I ask yeah, you? Please. Yeah. So I've I hear the term image search all the time. Does that include minutiae at all or is it just a tracing of the ridges that are automatically extracted? What really is an image search? How is it different and what features is it using compared to, say, a minutiae-based search? Right. So I'll answer kind of
0: generically first and then because there may be some differences between how different vendors do this image-only search. Uh, Differences I may not just be aware of, but probably the image only search that most listeners are going to be most familiar with is the LFIS search with ULW and NGI. So LFIS latent fingerprint image search versus the LFFS latent fingerprint feature search Uh it's just a different option that you can create and submit when you're using like the ULW software and you're searching the FBI's NGI system in that context. What generally happens is that the image that you're just sending the image of the latent print to the FBI. The software there at NGI will encode minutia onto that image automatically and then send in the image and the automatically encoded minutia into
1: the mattress for search. So so it is using minutia. Is it using like a skeleton image too, or is it using the skeleton image to find minutia? So
0: that's where we're kind of get into some of the secret sauce that that I don't mm. know the answer to. And it's really just the folks that work on these algorithms at each different vendor that would really know and because it's all trade secrets and that kind of stuff. But okay. the, the short answer in my kind of supposition would be probably both. It's probably you're using a skeletonized version of the image to place the minutia. And then it's also probably, depending on the vendor, Using a, the skeletonized version of the image and other image components as part of the search, or it may be doing so.
1: But it, it sounds like, bottom line though, it's all automated. That's one of the key things here. It's right. completely automated.
0: Yep. So that's the image only part of it. The second half, the last tests that were done back in 2010 to 2012 kind of range also included EFS or extended feature set. So this was part of ANSI NIST data that is in, that is used for biometric files that get sent around the NIST files that we talk about with 10 print records and latent print submissions and all this. And there's a lot of other things that could be included, right? So some of the samples may have like a pattern classification or whether or not it could be or might be laterally reversed or tonally reversed placement of cores and deltas in addition to minutia a polygon showing the region of interest, exactly where it is, orientation, impression type. There's lots of data that could be included in the extended feature set, but not all of the samples will have everything. And then Mm -hmm. each vendor, it's kind of up to each vendor as to which of this data to use, if at all, if it's available. Okay. So. Fast forward now to 2020, NIST decides, all right, let's reopen this. And it's been basically a decade since we did any of this testing. Let's see how these search algorithms perform now.
1: Uh, And uh, let's jump into with just a quick reminder, especially for people who may not know. So NIST right, is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They're a government agency that will, they don't write their own standards, but they develop standards. And for things like this, there are a third party that doesn't have a vested interest in this that will do solicitations and ask the vendors to come and participate in the testing. So they're this neutral third party agency that specializes in standards.
0: And I think it's important to also understand that the purpose of this testing is so that law enforcement agencies or you know parties that are interested in these types of matching algorithms. That they can see an unbiased third party independent review where the different algorithms are compared as much as possible, apples to apples, to see how they perform against each other.
1: Yeah. And be, because if you go and talk to a vendor and ask them, right. how good is your software, especially compared to the other vendors, every vendor is going to say, ours is the best, of course. <laughs> and so this is a way to actually evaluate and then apples to apples. Scenario,
0: And this is not meant as, a, as an estimation of how a specific agency's software is going to perform, right? The, sure. Good uh, point. The vendors may have, likely did, probably all of them though, tweaked their algorithms to fit this scenario so they could perform the best they could in this scenario. And it may be tweaked differently to fit a specific agency deployment. Uh,
1: right the, and that might be depending on the size of the database, the quality of, of the database and yeah, and
0: that's important also the right the database that there's there, the, the background database of non-matching samples is different here than it's going to be anywhere else and then the latency use are yeah. going to be different here than anywhere else. The, those are all unique things. so yeah. you can't really compare the fine details of this test versus your system. Uh, this is really, the purpose of this is to compare all the different vendors in this test. And then that would give you some idea of how, of how the different vendors then might perform as you evaluate their software, the accuracy of this type of test, but then all the other things that an agency would consider before choosing a vendor. So back for the original tests in the 2006 to 2012 range, it was set up as here's the test, finish the test, here's the results. Uh, What NIST has started moving towards in, in really all these biometric modalities is an, a seri- is an ongoing test, so right now the face searching, there's um, the test started a few years ago, and there's results out now. But then, as vendors produce new algorithms, they can send that into NIST, and then they update what how they perform on the web page on the result page, and this is going to do the same thing, right? It's still the very beginning stages. There's just been kind of. One submission from each of the major vendors so far, but this is going to be an ongoing thing. And I'm sure that all the folks at NIST are going to be at the IAI this summer and talk a whole lot more about it. They probably, if I remember right, they talked about it last year as well and kind of gave some details of what's coming. And then here, probably this coming summer, they'll have some of those first results presented. So in addition to that kind of change, going from a one-time thing to an ongoing, a few other little things, the test back in 10 years ago, the background gallery of the non-matching samples was 100,000 people. Uh, This time around, that's gone up to 1.6 million people. So a lot bigger background database, which makes it harder for the the matchers to find the right person, but also more and realistic.
1: A big jump. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, well over an order of magnitude. So, and then this time around, they're also including palms. That's the first time that they've done that in, in this type of search.
1: Good. That was one of my questions I had. Yeah. Excellent.
0: And as time goes along, it seems that from the NIST test plan that they're going to keep expanding. There may be some joints, tips, or other uh, latents that are considered as well. You know, additional data points that can be used as part of the search. So... Again, I would expect more and more tests and data and results to be coming out every year or so with more information that people can use to evaluate how well these different matches perform. All right. So let's look then at, at, at what's come out. So if you go, if you guys want to see the data here for yourselves, I would say just in Google, type in NIST, N-I-S-T and space E-L-F-T, the Evaluation of Latent Friction rich Technology, and that'll take you to the page where you can go into the links and then see the test plan and then the test results that have come out so far. There is no report out yet. That's probably coming in 2023 from NIST. So what I've done is gone through and pulled out all the data from the test revolt results files and you can you guys can do the same or just kind of pull up but you just can, you have to look at these different PDF files to compare and contrast how the different vendors performed against each other. It isn't yet compiled into a, an easily readable report on the NIST website. Quick aside, uh, since recording this episode, NIST has actually put up some graphs in the results page. At the bottom of the two graphs is uh, the one that measures false negative rate, so how often latent searches miss. So ideally, the best scoring algorithm is there at the bottom. So again, search for NIST ELFT, go to the results page, and then you can see those graphs. But again, my supposition is that they're working on that and it'll be up later in 23. All right, so let's look at some of the results here. So there's a few different tests. So, first, we're breaking down the tests. The first one is a fairly small test on what they called the FBI laboratory latent samples, just 49 latent prints against that 1.6 million fingerprint database. And then there's another set that they called the FBI solved latent samples, 516 latents. I'm not quite sure where all the samples came from, what the solved part means, if it's casework, but or what, or if this is truly ground truth known samples here. And then there is the Michigan latent samples. The state of Michigan assisted NIST in providing samples for the testing. They had in that set 2013. And finally, the Michigan latent palms. This is where the palms come in, 161 Mm -hmm. latent palm samples. And In that one, the background database was 150,000 people with palms, as opposed to the 1.6 million with the fingers. And then what what they provided here in the results is what percentage of each test set hit to the correct person. And they provided three data points. If you look at just the top number one candidate, you know, was the... Correct person in the top 50 candidates and then was the correct person in the top 100. I
1: I will say that that was one of the things I realized that they've historically done, but I would like to have seen rank one, rank 10, and rank 20 or something like that because I mean, nobody has 50 candidates. So it doesn't <laughs> matter if it's the 49th or 50th. Of course, it could be the second candidate. I mean, I realize that the distinction between candidate one, that's an important one, versus two through 50 but i don't know i would like to have seen that broken down or at least a 10 and a 20 which is more realistic with actual crime lab practices
0: so no that's a very good point and my guess is that's coming in the report that they're going to release and technically it's that information is there if you look at the the graphs that they released so in the reports that are these pdf files that are available on the website If you go to the graph, the CMC graphs, the cumulative match characteristics, they have the false negative identification rate graphed out with rank one, all the way out to rank 100. Ah. However, the table where they actually put in the specific false negative identification rate values that I can then put into a table and start playing with in, in, in Excel only had those specific lines at one at 50 and hundred. So. The, the kind of fine detail looking at 10 or 15 or 20 or five, it's all there. You just kind of have to extrapolate looking at where that number falls on the graph. But like, I still definitely see your point and, and hope that that's a bit clearer where you can then say, okay, instead of comparing everybody at one or 50, let's compare all these different vendors at 10 and see where it falls there. Right. So one of the things that that really kind of of stood out as a difference between these tests from the last time is the last time around 10 years ago, there were, again, many different types of tests and each of the vendors was kind of able to pull out one category of tests that they scored number one at. So every vendor was like, we're number one at image only searches, or we're number one at latent searches with the... EFS data encoded. There was something really for everybody where then everybody could say they were number one in this specific category. This time around, that's not what I'm seeing here at all, right? This time around, it is very clearly IDEMIA I had basically scored much higher than all the other vendors across all the different tests.
1: Yeah, it was a clean sweep. It was really I mean, a really, clean sweep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so there were six vendors. Swept the Oscars. Exactly. Uh, so six vendors so far have, have participated. Those are Ademia, NEC, Talus, Neurotechnology, Grial, and Dermalog. So probably the first three are the vendors everyone's more familiar with. And those are the vendors with big systems in states and counties and cities across the country and in other countries. I'm just going to kind of lump those all together. In general, NEC, Talus, and Neurotechnologies, were all about in the same place. So in gen- I may kind of group those together. But uh, for that first small test with the 49 samples, just looking at rank one, idemia was sitting at about just 92%, and then all the way out to rank 50 and 100 climbs up to 98. While the other ones were sitting around uh, rank one, got hits on about 80% of them. And then by rank 100, you're looking around between 80 and 90%. Right.
1: Yeah, it's a significant difference. I mean, without a
0: doubt. Right. So then... In the 516 samples from their, the FBI solved the database, again at, at rank one, Idemia is sitting at. Well, let me actually clarify. So here they looked at both uh, two different ways of searching: image only and image plus the EFS expert encoded features. So for those just at just looking at one candidate, Idemia was at 92 and 93 percent. While everyone else is sitting at oh a higher up, 75 to 85 percent. Uh, and then out to a hundred candidates, you know, Idemia climbed up to ninety-five, while everyone else was in the oh, eighty-five to ninety-two kind of range.
1: Yeah, that was one of the things that I had noticed was that effectively, Idemia performed basically the same whether it was image only or image yeah. plus EFS. But the other vendors had a significant improvement when it was the image plus the EFS. There was a huge jump in accuracy for those vendors, but I really didn't have much of a change in performance there. I thought that was interesting, which again, asks something about the secret sauce that <laughs> is their image only j- basically just as good as their image plus EFS, or are they really not using EFS in the same way? I mean, there's just questions about why that might be when all the other Im- vendors were improved using the EFS in addition to the image.
0: I think part of that effect may just be that if the image-only search is already near 100%, adding on the EFS data, there's not a whole lot. You, you can't go past 100. There's only so f- much further you can go. Sure. So I think that may be part of that effect of uh, of that difference.
1: Right. It's already turbocharged, so hitting turbo doesn't really add them much more to it. Right.
0: The thing that really just blew me away from this set here with the FBI solved is if you look at the, you know, how Idemia did looking at just image only and one candidate, that was a 92.44% hit rate percentage, which is one minus the false negative ID rate. If you look at basically all the other vendors out at their, just at their image plus EFS, right? So you, so to try to basically stack the deck as hard as you can. Idemia only gets one candidate and image only. That's the only data they get to search. Everybody else gets to include the expert encoded minutia and go out hundred candidates deep. And Idemia with this the one candidate and image only is as good or better than everybody else using the extra data and
1: going a hundred candidates. Yeah, that's a good point. That's actually a, that's a great way to summarize that.
0: Yeah, like you said, clean sweep. I honestly was expecting when this this has been kind of coming for year or so i was honestly expecting something similar to last time where depending on the category one vendor could say i was better here another vendor could say i was better here and s- similar to the last time around i w- did not expect this level of difference between uh, idemia and the other vendors i really didn't hmm. all right so let's move on to the michigan set so the michigan set looks like a harder data set overall which again is important When anyone is doing any kind of accuracy testing with their AFIS software, the difficulty of the test is really pertinent here. So again, with the FBI data sets, everyone was looking at at least 75% or better, up to 92%, 93% on just one candidate searches. With the Michigan data set, much harder, so the accuracy rates dropped off quite a bit. These were all yeah. image only. There were no expert encoded minutiae provided. And with the, for the, Idemia started at 71% for one candidate, everybody else at about 45% and then climbed yeah. up after. Yeah,
1: it was like a 30% drop all, yeah. or 30 or 40 almost percent drop.
0: And then at a hundred candidates up to 81% where everyone else is in the kind of 55 to 60% range. So twenty point, twenty-five point a difference there as well. And then finally with the palms, the for just number one candidate is going pretty easy way to to summarize kind of the differences between the vendors, Idemia at 78%, and then any and Talus at about 65, 60 to 70 percent. And then one last thing with the palms, I mean including neurotechnology in with NEC and Talus for uh, for all the other ones. Palms is where they drop way off. And it's really only Idemia, NEC, and Talus that can do palm searches at all. The other three were way off the board in how they performed on latent palm searches. Uh, Abysmal?
1: Would that be a fair adjective?
0: Yep. They just, just doesn't look like they've had the practice to get palm searching up to the level of the big three. But uh, so that's, I think this is the data that the examiners in this audience would be most interested in. There's other stuff in there about like the memory footprint of, or the storage footprint for the, for the templates that are created with all these fingerprints, how long it takes to search, et cetera, et cetera, all that data is in there as well, but when it comes down to it, my impression's always been the latent examiners are more concerned about accuracy. As long as everything else just works, I want accuracy. If it takes a little bit longer, fine. If it takes a lot more memory or storage in the computer or whatever, you know, I just want, if I do a search, I want to get a hit. All, all those other factors are definitely important, but they're mainly more of a focus for like the admins, the 10 print folks that work on a system. But again, it's all there if, right. if you guys want to go and look at more detail into that. Right.
1: Yeah. Like you said, there's other, you know, metrics, but the ones that are really most important to us, will it hit when it's there? Right. And that, and is it better to use an image-only search or the extended feature set? And that seemed pretty clear that if I'm using idemia, the image-only is fine, whereas if I was using the NEC or TALIS system, I would want to use the extended feature set to increase my chances significantly.
0: Right. And I mean, even with the idemia ones, you still get even more accurate if you take the time to, to do the full manual encoding and or the cleanup of the manual encoding. There's a paper the FBI wrote in early 2022 that we should talk about at some point.
1: And I would even throw in the study that we had done for the white paper with the K-Safe mm, system, yep. where we did basically that automated approach versus the cleanup approach. And it took hours to clean up hundreds of latents. And it really didn't change the hit rate much at all. I think it changed two candidates from the first position to the second position out of 120 it still hit they were just in the second position right so basically my experience with the case safis was very similar to the percentages and the performance i saw here in this system the the NIST test
0: right and, and that's also going to play into what the size of the database is right are you looking at oh, a, of course case yeah. Safest search a state versus ngi as you get bigger and bigger the accuracy is going to start to drop off just because you're going against just a sea of people where then competition exactly adding in that that uh, that manual data it might be the thing that pushes you over the, the edge but yeah good point like i said we'll talk about that and with the fbi paper at some point down the road because that's a really interesting one too
1: okay. well that's all pretty fascinating I, I thanks for kind of explaining that and walking us through that
0: yeah i i'm already planning on doing a breakdown here at the iai just got to figure out exactly how to how to frame all this but also not step on NIST toes because i'm assuming that greg fumara or someone from NIST is going to be presenting all this as well and uh, i don't Mm. want to steal any of their thunder
1: if i can ask the question is there a way for a vendor to look at this and go well this isn't a fair test Mm. you know this doesn't do you know what what might a complaint from a vendor be My recollection is in the past ones, vendors always complained about something. They didn't do this or this didn't do that. or This was unfair for us because we normally would operate in this kind of environment and this changes everything. Right. Kind of wondering what someone might look at this and go, well, here's why this is an unfair test for this particular vendor. Any thoughts? I mean,
0: so in general, I think what you may hear is questions about, you know, this is how the system performs in this test with NIST, with this version of the algorithms and this configuration specifically set up for this test. But is that gonna be the same version of the matchers and the same configuration that's gonna be set up on your system? And I would assume that really all the vendors have tried out their latest and greatest matchers to just put out the latest technology and test the best that they have available which may not have made it into the product yet. But I, I would assume that be the same for all of the vendors. This is really a comparison of what type of investment have the vendors been making in their matching technology to perform yes. in this test. And that yeah. may not correlate exactly to what is being rolled out and deployed this year. But I, again, I think that's the same for everybody. So it, it's really, you're not going to be able to recreate these results exactly on a different system because it's got different data, but this is comparing as best we can apples to apples, how do these different vendors perform against each other, where then you can make some extrapolations of how that would then work out in
1: in a real system. Did each vendor get to encode the known exemplars in the study? So my understanding is the
0: way this works is that the known exemplars come in and are automatically encoded by each different vendor software um, okay
1: because i could see that being a thing that if they were encoded by by some other system yep. a vendor could argue well our extraction would be different and if our extractors had encoded those knowns our hit rate would have been much higher
0: no in my yeah, my understanding is that the nist files come in like they would from a live scan and that's one of the things that they yep. actually measure in this test is how fast does the system encode all these 1.6 million 10 print records and then what yeah, is that's huge which, yeah and then what is the database size right when now when that's all sitting on a database somewhere how much space does that take up and how much memory yeah. does it take to then run latents against all of these templates
1: yeah that's cool yeah that that's useful information too for sure all
0: right glint any other questions to pose as kind of the voice of the audience here that you're taking on here this episode
1: no, I you answered all the questions and kind of walked through it. And again, I have the benefit of looking at these graphs as well. Can any listeners reach out to you and ask for a copy of these graphs? It was really nice seeing the data presented that way. It's just so clear to look at the visual representation of the data.
0: Right. So uh, what I would say is that let's wait for NIST to put out their report. And, you know, just like last time, they didn't have it like the way I've made it, just Excel. They've got better software than that. And that should be out here fairly soon for everyone to look at. The Probably the exception is I'll probably have some of these included in conference presentations definitely by summertime. Okay, that's fair. Let, let's, let's slow roll that one and let the NIST report be the main thing. And then the other stuff I've created will roll out slowly after that.
1: Okay, fair enough. Well, thank you very much, Eric, for sharing your views and uh, walking us through all that data. No problem at all. Glenn, do you have any classes you want to talk about before we close out? Sure. If listeners are interested, I have an exclusion and sufficiency course being taught in Canada. That is March 6th through March 9th. That will be with John Black in Calgary, Canada. Looking forward to that. I love Calgary or Calgary, as they say up there. Do they say Calgary? And I've never yeah, heard anyone some, say Calgary. The, yeah, some of the locals will call it Calgary, but not all of the locals call it Calgary. It's very confusing. That's when weird. I hear it, I definitely know they're from that area, but not all the locals say Calgary. There's like a,
0: a lifetime ago. I I spent three months working in Red Deer, which is about an hour north of Calgary, and would occasionally go mm-hmm. drive down to Calgary to get out of Red Deer, and that's just one thing I just never remember anyone
1: saying. Yeah, i Again, I hear it here and there, okay. and it, okay. it always catches my ear. I'll be teaching in Houston the advanced v course. That's a solo five-day course. That's April 17th through the 21st, and then I'll be teaching May 1 through 3, the 1st of May there, with Carrie Hall and Brendan Max, the practical answers for challenging questions in the courtroom. All three classes you can find at ronsmithandassociates.com. Register today. I'm still teaching webinars. Through Alice White's company, Evolve Forensics, and you can find those webinars at EvolveForensics.com.
0: All right. Well, if you guys have any questions for us, send us emails: Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. Go to our website, wpodcast.com for seeing all of the episodes that are there and uh, our merchandise store with some great T-shirts and all sorts of the fun stuff there. Mugs and glasses and stuff. If you'd like to help us out and see some of the old episodes that have been moved off of the website, you can become a patron at patreon.com double loop podcast and send us a buck or two a month, whatever you think is appropriate. And that's got all the old episodes stored there. Now, remember the opinions expressed on the show of those are the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for, especially this episode. And uh, with that, talk to you guys all later. Have a good one.
1: Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Monolacapise. We'll yeah.